This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I am hopeful as well that you know, as COVID-19 vaccines become more widely available, that there will be a greater focus on helping countries to deliver those vaccines and really encourage their populations to take them up so that we can, you know, begin to, you know, start to see some relief on the horizon from the current pandemic and really get back to the important work of sustaining progress on, you know, some of the longer term challenges around maternal and child health, HIV and tuberculosis and other infectious diseases. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. As the year comes to an end and a new one begins, it's time to look back at all of 2021's biggest security and foreign policy issues and look ahead to issues likely to make an impact in 2022. I spoke with three scholars to assess the past year's challenges and the ones likely to dominate the headlines in the new year. Joining me for this conversation are three of my CSIS colleagues. Dr. Catherine Bliss, CSIS Senior Fellow and Director of Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience in the Global Health Policy Center. Rachel Elohus, CSIS Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the Europe, Russia and Eurasia Program. And Marty Flax, CSIS Senior Fellow and Director of the Human Rights Initiative. I encourage listeners to check out the full bios of these three impressive scholars at CSIS.org. Before we begin today's conversation, I want to say a quick word about the person that regular listeners of this podcast are used to hearing. That's Beverly Kirk, good friend, wonderful colleague. Beverly has left CSIS to go head an organization focused on empowering women, so a perfect place for Beverly to be. We hope to have Beverly back soon to tell us all about her exciting new adventure. But now on for today's conversation. Catherine, Rachel, and Marty, thanks for joining me for Smart Women, Smart Power's traditional end of the year episode where we look back and look ahead. Let's start by hearing what you think are the top three foreign policy and security issues of 2021 in your areas of interest in addition to any areas that surprised you. Catherine, let's start with you. Well, thank you, Suzanne. It, it's fun to be here today. You know, I would, I would say from the global health perspective, one of the, the most important issues is the inequitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. When we know these vaccines started to be approved about a year ago and countries that were able to secure deals with producers, and you know, this was largely high-income countries, started rolling them out right away. But the majority of lower and lower income countries were not able to secure deals directly with manufacturers. So they started participating in COVAX, which is the global network led by Gavi, the WHO, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, and UNICEF. And, you know, COVAX intended to provide the 92 lowest income countries with vaccines free of charge to cover kind of the 20 percent of their populations of health workers and vulnerable populations. 
But it has, it started deliveries in February of 2021, but has faced a number of challenges. You know, one was most of its supply was supposed to be provided by Serum Institute of India. But then when India faced the Delta variant surge in April, the government basically instituted export controls. So some of COVAX's plans had to be put on hold. You know, as of yesterday, we know that about 55% of the world has received at least one dose of COVID vaccine. That's more than 8 billion doses given globally. But the majority of those have been in the high-income and upper-middle-income countries. And just a little over 6% of the population in lower-income countries has even had one dose. And, you know, the list is kind of surprising in some ways. You know, at the top of the distribution are United Arab Emirates, Cuba, Portugal, Chile, China, and Cambodia, with 80% or more fully vaccinated. But at the bottom, you know, we see Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Tanzania, where it's closer to 3% or less. And so, you know, I think as long as we see large pockets of unvaccinated people globally, we'll continue to see the emergence of new variants, continued economic disruptions, and you know, the potential for greater political polarization and insecurity. Just two other points I would raise, you know, one, misinformation and disinformation. You know, we've seen this about the COVID-19 vaccines, and it's a huge challenge. You know, when we talk about the inequitable distribution, it's really about supply or production. And then we have countries' access to those vaccines, whether it's through COVAX or other deals. But, you know, even if countries get access to the vaccines and get them delivered, you know, even to the most remote rural and, and peri-urban populations, there's still the issue of demand. And that's where misinformation and disinformation come in. You know, even before COVID, we saw a lot of vaccine hesitancy. That was driving some of the measles outbreaks we, we heard about in 2018 and 2019. But the arrival of the new COVID vaccines developed in record time and with new technologies has been fodder for so much misinformation and disinformation. You know, the deliberately false statements that circulate through social media, through WhatsApp and on the Internet. And, you know, there are all these rumors about everything from 5G technology to microchip implants or that they cause infertility. And some of these are older vaccine rumors that have been repackaged in the COVID period and then let loose on social media. But others are new, and they definitely resonate with a population concerned about new technology in the pandemic era. And just a third issue I would mention is just pandemic-related backsliding on other global health priorities. You know, we've seen the diversion of health resources and health personnel to COVID response, plus all the transportation disruptions and supply chain issues that we've heard about. And so there's been a great loss of progress in meeting international goals related to diseases like HIV and tuberculosis as well as access to maternal and child health services and immunizations. You know, babies haven't stopped being born just because we're in a pandemic. And so those pregnant women need antenatal services and children need routine immunization for measles, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, you know, among others. And for people living with HIV who are on antiretroviral therapy, having an interruption in the supply of medication because of transportation slowdowns or no appointments at a clinic overwhelmed by COVID-19 can mean the development of drug resistance and the need to move to a stronger treatment with more side effects. And so, you know, I'd say, you know, we could talk about maternal and child health services, HIV, tuberculosis, and others. But what we know, you know, is that these are, you know, perhaps slow burning challenges, but they are not something that we can ignore. And so we really have to focus on maintaining continuity of services and, and re kind of closing those gaps in, in progress toward meeting some of these international goals while we deal with the pandemic at the same time. Such uh, great points, Catherine, and really looking forward to coming back and teasing you out on, on some of those points. But that's a great introduction, great set of issues. Thank you. Rachel, how about you? 
Well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for, for hosting all of us. I'll just quickly highlight three issues because I think they hang together in really changing how we think about transatlantic relations and what the various drivers are in the United States' relationship with Europe. The first is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. This was long anticipated after many years of engagement in the country, but the 31 August deadline really took a lot of allies and partners by surprise. They suddenly found themselves explaining to their publics why this evacuation had to happen on such a quick deadline. They found themselves justifying the goals of the engagement over the previous 20 years and they found themselves challenged to execute that evacuation itself in an efficient and effective way. It really brought to light the dependence of many European countries on the United States for some key capabilities like strategic transport or force protection or even intelligence sharing. So I think we'll see Afghanistan with us for a long time where many allies are internalizing the experience of Afghanistan as they rethink their priorities in the national security field, as they rethink the level of reliance on the United States, and as they rethink the balance between, let's say, a focus on territorial defense in their own countries and in the European theater, as opposed to becoming engaged in, in crisis management and peacekeeping operations overseas. The second challenge I'd highlight, or event I would highlight, is, is the so-called AUKUS surprise. So. AUKUS, for listeners who may not be familiar with it, is this agreement that was reached between Australia, the United States, and the UK. The most publicized element of that was an agreement for the United States to sell nuclear submarines to Australia. The reason that this is significant is because that deal then sort of scuppered a pre-existing agreement France had to sell submarines to Australia for, for its security. So this took a lot of European countries by surprise. There was speculation that this was really a reminder that the US intent to pivot towards the Indo-Pacific and Asia is very real. It raised questions about whether that was a zero-sum pivot whereby Europe would lose posture and U.S. commitment. It was also a reminder to many, France in particular, that countries at the end of the day do tend to take their national interests first. And as close as France is as an ally to the U.K., Australia, and the U.S., a real perception that the submarine deal with France could not meet its security needs given the evolving threat picture in Asia, I think brought home that idea that national interests still prevail even as we face collective security challenges. But AUKUS also tended to be a plus in the U.S.-French relationship where it focused and concentrated minds on what should be the priorities with regard to the balance between U.S. engagement in Europe and Europe stepping up for its own security. So we saw some progress there that I don't think we would have seen without the unfortunate experience of, of AUKUS and European countries being surprised by that. The third one, which we're living out in real time as, as the new German government was, was sworn in yesterday, is the departure of Chancellor Merkel of Germany after 16 years. She was a leader in Europe. She was a leader in the transatlantic relationship. She had a real skill for balancing conflicts and, and riding out everything from the pandemic to economic crises to balancing the relationship with Russia. Now we need a new motor, a new personality or a group of personalities that can help drive the transatlantic relationship and strike that balance. 
Great. Thank you. And, and uh, lots of good issues there that I, I will, we'll follow up on as we progress here as well. Thank you very much. Marty, over to you. Thanks, Suzanne. It's great to be here. The first topic I'll mention is the continuation of the egregious human rights abuses in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in China, including the Chinese government's policies of large-scale detention and quote-unquote re-education of ethnic Uyghurs, believed to be the largest scale detention of religious minorities since World War II, uh, including widespread use of forced labor that is highly integrated into global supply chains. It's a situation both the Trump administration and the, now the Biden administration have characterized as a genocide. There was a perception in the Trump administration that the focus on this situation to some extent was driven more by geopolitics and the administration's approach to China than it was by human rights concerns. And so there was some belief that the emphasis may shift somewhat when the Biden administration took office. And in fact, we've seen the opposite. Over the last year, the Biden administration has continued and even expanded upon the last administration's deployment of creative tools to respond to the situation, including a number of actions to make it harder for companies to source goods from Xinjiang and to import goods produced there into the United States, even taking robust position on strategic sectors like the solar industry by making it harder to import solar panels from Xinjiang, even though they represent a large quantity of the global production of those panels. And obviously that industry is central to the administration's climate goals. And of course, most recently announcing a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. The second region and issue I wanted to mention is the growing conflict in Ethiopia. The, the conflict began at the very end of 2020 in Tigray, but grew over the past year and really metastasized into conflict that has engulfed much of Ethiopia. And we've seen really horrific reports of, of mass executions, of targeting of civilians, and incredibly flagrant denial of humanitarian access. As a result, we're seeing really concerning reports of, of famine and egregious human rights abuses. And the Biden administration has really struggled to break through on getting the parties to the negotiating table to even begin to talk about ending that conflict. And the implications of this for uh, the region and the continent are significant, not just in Ethiopia, but all over East Africa, where Historically, Ethiopia has played a really important peacemaking and peacekeeping role and has been, at least for the last decade or two, uh, really the foundation of regional stability. It is now driving conflict and bringing in its neighbors, including Eritrea, and even we've seen in recent weeks some skirmishes on the border with Sudan. And so that situation has deteriorated significantly over the past year, and it's one that frankly is not yet on a path to recovery and that I'm extremely concerned about. And finally, you can't think about global human rights issues over the past year without acknowledging the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and the implications that has for human rights and particularly the rights of women and girls in that country. And it's an issue that, you know, frankly, that I think the United States would like to see off the agenda. The, the situation in Afghanistan is one that obviously has been a difficult one for the administration to grapple with since they made the decision to withdraw. But as I'm sure we'll talk about more over the course of this hour, the situation in terms of human rights and humanitarian issues in Afghanistan is one that's going to continue to force its way back onto the U.S. agenda in the coming year. Those are very sobering assessments from each of you, but really fascinating. I'm, I'm going to come back to all of them, but I want to 
start, all of you have really placed your remarks primarily in the in the context of, you know, what's going on outside the United States. I want to bring us back first to the, you know, what's happened over the last year here domestically and and how that is impacted by the issues that you've discussed. So we had a very eventful start to 2021 between the attack on the Capitol on January 6th and the and then the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine and the swearing in of the Biden-Harris administration. So, Catherine, I'm, I want to start with you and go back to your expertise and issues around the COVID and talk about the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine nationally and globally. You talked about the challenges that arise from the inequities of that distribution. But let's talk about the uneven distribution inside or acceptance inside the United States. CDC says that as of December 8, 71.4% of the U.S. population has at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, and 60.4% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated, if you define fully vaccinated as two shots. Should we be defining fully vaccinated now as having the booster shot as well, given, particularly given what we're seeing now with the emergence of the Omicron variant? Yeah, so I think yesterday was actually the day that we passed that 60% mark here in the United States with a little over 200 million people fully vaccinated. And, you know, when you think about where we were last year at this time or even six months ago, that's a pretty big achievement. And, you know, the Biden-Harris administration, very much in partnership with states and local communities, has done a great deal to make the vaccines available, share information about them and encourage their uptake. And I mean, you know, I think first it's important to recognize that the research and push to develop the vaccines actually started in the spring and summer of 2020 through Operation Warp Speed, you know, which was a Department of Defense and Health and Human Services overseeing process that really brought together academic researchers, the private sector, the biopharmaceutical sector and others, and the government, you know, really together to accelerate research and undertake at-risk manufacturing, basically producing vaccines and having them ready to go even before they'd been fully tested and approved. And all of that research built on years of taxpayer-funded work at the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Defense, some, you know, through the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, you know, BARDA, part of HHS, and, and other public programs. Now, last year, you know, here at CSIS, the Global Health Policy Center ran a, a high-level panel on vaccine confidence and misinformation. Uh, we worked in partnership with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And it was focused on, you know, the domestic issues and really the implications for national security of vaccine hesitancy, which was already an issue in the summer of 2020, even before the vaccines had been authorized. And, you know, one of the things that we were really interested in was the issue of misinformation and disinformation about vaccines that was circulating on social media. And, you know, it's really amplified by some of the algorithms that favor extreme content. Will fully vaccinated change meaning in 2022? Maybe. You know, we've got boosters. Uh, They've now been authorized for, you know, people who have been previously fully vaccinated with the one or two shot combinations. And just in the last few days, Pfizer has stated that company data shows that a third dose of, you know, the booster, you know, as we talk about it, is effective against the newest variant we've been hearing about, the Omicron variant. Now, if that becomes a dominant variant, you know, we could see these recommendations kind of moving into a new definition of fully vaccinated, as as you asked at the beginning here, you know, meaning three or more doses. But, you know, I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, we have new therapies on the horizon as well. You know, when we when we think about kind of ways to respond to COVID, I mean, there are Testing, you know, and equitable access to testing has been important. Therapies, developing therapies that are effective and making those, you know, well distributed. And then the vaccines are kind of the the three parts. 
And therapies have kind of lagged behind. But just, you know, the last few months, you know, we've seen a couple of new therapies, you know, announced and on the horizon and making their way through approvals. There's the Merck product, Molnupiravir. And Pfizer has also announced a combination therapy that, you know, is effective. These, you know, as they go through approval and, and really scale up in terms of manufacturing and distribution, they, they could really help address the pandemic, both domestically and internationally. But, you know, it's important to recognize that, you know, this kind of treatment will have to be paired with better access to testing, making the testing more affordable and accessible. And, you know, at the same time, if people are going to make use of these therapies, they have to have access to healthcare workers who can diagnose them and provide prescriptions for the pills within the first few days of infection for them to be, be effective. So, you know, I think there's a lot of good news about boosters and about access to therapies and, you know, really about, you know, where we've come in the past year. But there are still a lot of questions as well. So the bottom line is, you know, I certainly think it's not quite time to put away our masks, much as we might all want to. And you make a great point that even all of the great actions that are taking place, both through science and through management and administration, you know, acceptance is a huge issue and and misinformation and disinformation. I mean, reaching people where they where they live and through the people they trust, like for the vaccinations for children, you know, making sure that, that that's available through pediatricians that are, you know, trusted deliverers, but all of that can be undermined by this mis and disinformation. And and, uh, and Rachel and, and Marty, I want to bring you into the conversation because obviously the mis and disinformation is, is a global issue. And Rachel, I wonder if you've got some thoughts on what more we could be doing, you know, multilaterally through international organizations or uh, working with other countries to, for example, make disinformation about health issues more of a taboo. Would that help if there was a stronger consensus about how incredibly harmful that is? Are there other things that we could be doing? Because we know that a lot of that disinformation is being peddled by, by countries, by nation states. Well, I'm happy to begin and then turn it over to Marty. You know, when I look at the situation in Europe and, and how they've handled the pandemic, you know, the U.S. is certainly an influencer just due to its size. But I think actually the pandemic shows us that there can be lessons learned for the U.S. from Europe as well, both on the disinformation front and more broadly. So I think when I look to Europe, I see the benefits of universal health care in getting out the vaccine and, and getting people the care they need. I see the benefits of a centralized and, and digitalized healthcare system so that you can track who's vaccinated, who's not, infections. You know, the COVID pass has been a, a great success in enabling travel to resume transatlantically and within Europe. And so I'd like to see the United States adopt some of those best practices from Europe. But, you know, turning, turning on to the disinformation front, I mean, I think certainly the pandemic was something that people saw as a potential security risk. I, I think NATO called it out as a, as a security risk all the way back in 2010 in its last strategic concept. But the resourcing just simply didn't follow because it fell in that high risk, low probability category. So people you know, could see that it might be coming down the road, but with other threats staring in your face, it just doesn't rise to the top. I think that lesson's been learned in addition to some of the media steps that were taken in, in these multinational organizations assisting with transport of personnel and supplies and, and building trust funds to, to help towards the, you know, the vaccine distributions and, and pandemic pre preparedness in the future, I think you know, there, is, there is a role in the disinformation space. 
I would particularly point to measures that we can take to reduce the supply side. So things like more media accountability and not spreading that disinformation and misinformation, public education campaigns. You know, Finland is particularly good at this in making sure that the public is, is generally aware and that the media has legal responsibilities, in fact, to not propagate that misinformation and disinformation. But, you know, the harder, the harder problem is building those defenses on the societal resilience side. So we can try to call out the misinformation and disinformation as much as we want and educate our publics. But at the end of the day, if you can't increase that public trust in government, if you can't ensure that very open and diverse public broadcasting network, if you can't engage those marginalized communities and address their very specific hesitancies with regard to vaccines or whatever it might be, I think you're just sort of chipping away at the problem. It's no accident that the countries in Europe that have the highest rates of vaccinations are also the ones that have the highest levels of public trust in government. Yeah, Rachel, I couldn't agree with you more. I think building public resilience against the content of mis- and disinformation is one of the most important things we can do, and that oftentimes the objective broadly is to undermine public trust in our democratic institutions. And I think one of the ways that we counter it is by reinvigorating civics education to help people empower individuals to hold institutions accountable. I think that's one of the most important ways we can rebuild trust in our institutions is by uh, empowering individuals to help be more effective agents of change. So thank you for that. Marty, you know, we talked a bit about the implications of the unequal distribution of, of both vaccines and treatment of COVID-19 around the world and wonder what your thoughts are on the obvious, there's obvious human rights implications from from that, but also from the resulting destabilization, right, of economies and communities and governance generally. We've really seen that this pandemic has exacerbated the kind of economic and social inequality that we have already seen growing over the past decades. And as you previously said, has reinforced some of the distrust and mistrust that we've seen people uh, feel about their governments who haven't been adequately protecting those people. The other reason for that growing distrust is because many governments around the world have used the pandemic as an excuse to further limit or attack civil liberties. Human Rights Watch has called this a, a pandemic of human rights abuse. At least 83 governments around the world in their research have used the pandemic as an excuse to violate extra, the exercise of free speech, of freedom of assembly. We've seen governments arrest and threaten journalists who've been critical of the government's pandemic response. They've passed new laws limiting the right to protest. And so it's not a surprise that this has further impacted citizens' confidence in their government, but it means that it's it is incredibly important that as we think about pandemic recovery and we start to put the emphasis on this idea of building back better, that that includes both protections for civil and political rights, as well as economic and social rights. And this work that we do domestically as the Biden administration focuses on its Build Back Better agenda includes those pieces around building more equitable and, and inclusive economies. And it's been really heartening to see, even as we speak, the Biden administration is hosting a global summit for democracy. And it's been, it's been great to see that that summit is focused not just on the kind of core civil and political rights that we think about in democracies, like free and fair elections, as critically important as those are, but that there's also been a really robust focus on that Build Back Better global 
agenda around addressing the social and economic issues that are contributing to the undermining of democracy around the world. And in addition to COVID, one of the other events, obviously, that you mentioned that has contributed to real concerns about human rights, of course, was the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan and the implications for human rights for Afghan women and girls in particular. You know, we're all aware that this is a very grave concern. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on what we and the international community can and should be doing to address that. Absolutely. And I think how the administration and the international community responds to the situation in Afghanistan is going to be incredibly important for our broader human rights and democracy agenda for us to have credibility to claim that we're putting human rights and democracy at the center of our foreign policy agenda. We simply have to address the challenges in some of these uh, very, very difficult circumstances, and especially a place that we have spent so much time and money investing in over the past 20 years. We know that The Taliban takeover has had grave consequences for human rights and particularly for women and girls. We went from a situation where in 2001, there were almost no Afghan girls who were in school. And as of, uh, you know, two, three years ago, there was something like a tenfold increase in K through 12 education enrollment. We had, you know, 10 million girls in school. We had 90,000 women in higher education, that progress has all been evaporated in an instant when the Taliban took over. Girls in almost all provinces are now banned from secondary school and universities. Women are banned from many types of jobs. Beyond women and girls, we're seeing media censorship and journalists threatened. And most urgently, and what I hope the United States will focus on over the course of this winter, is addressing the massive economic crisis that is fueling uh, food insecurity and uh, absolutely dire consequences for uh, people all over the country as a result of the lack of access that the Taliban now has to Afghanistan's foreign assistance reserves, which were rightly frozen when they took over. Um, But because the Afghan economy was almost entirely dependent on foreign aid and foreign assistance that has now been cut off, we're seeing a hard currency crisis and we're seeing uh, the inability of the Taliban to pay public servants. So we're seeing people stay home from jobs, uh, which they're not being paid for, which is causing health clinics to close and exacerbating the impact of the pandemic, as well as other diseases and having just dramatic impacts on the on the economy. And so we're seeing food insecurity, even in places like uh, in Kabul. So we've got more than half the Afghan population facing food insecurity over the course of this winter, which is which is really striking. And so what we need to do very quickly, both as the United United States and with our partners is not just provide humanitarian assistance, uh, which is desperately needed. We need to deliver on the more than $1.2 billion commitment that we've made to provide humanitarian assistance in Afghanistan. But we also need to find ways to inject cash into that economy in a way that doesn't directly support the Taliban. There are ways to do this where we can where we can support local business, or we can support civil society organizations, and we can even support public servants without directly recognizing or working through the Taliban government. And we need to make clear that our sanctions, which are rightly in place on the Taliban, both for human rights issues, but also because of their connection with terrorist organizations, don't get in the way of access to resources for the Afghan population itself. And finally, I'll just say, as I said earlier on, that uh, this issue has to stay on the radar. This this area, this country has been a very difficult one for the Biden administration. And it's one that, frankly, I think they would like to see off the front pages 
of the newspaper. But if they don't take action to tackle the human rights and humanitarian crisis, it will force its way into the headlines. And so it's much better to address this problem now than let it fester and have growing regional consequences as well. Yeah. So so if we don't pay attention, it could be a flashpoint in 2022. Rachel, that, that's a good segue to, I want to ask you what we ought to be focused on as we look ahead to next year. And clearly, you know, two big areas of concern always, but increasingly, particularly intensely now and looking ahead to the start of the new year, uh, Russia and China. What should we be prepared for? Afghanistan isn't going to go away. From a European perspective, there's still a lot of internalizing of that experience. You know, on the one hand, you have many countries who are relieved and and wished that withdrawal had happened sooner, especially those that are more concerned with, with the Russia threat that you just named. While there are others that are disappointed to leave a job undone and and lose some of those gains that were made, particularly with regard to things like the education of of girls and and getting more women into the workforce. So I think over the next year, we'll see a lot of inquiries and reviews on everything from the way the evacuation was handled to the accuracy of the intelligence that that led to a situation where the Taliban very quickly took over in, in most regions and provinces, despite intelligence that suggested that the Afghan national forces and government could, could hold its own for a period of time, to questioning about the objective itself. NATO has a, it's currently updating its strategic concept, which is its main guiding document that sets the general direction of travel. That hasn't been updated since 2010. So I think you're going to see a a lot of focus in that document on revisiting what the balance should be between collective defense and crisis management, a situation like Afghanistan. To what extent should the alliance become involved in these types of situations overseas? Is it better to sort of focus here at home when that Russia threat is, is so real and the pressure for European allies to work alongside the US with regard to the Indo-Pacific is also very real. That having been said, just to close on Afghanistan, but before turning to Russia and China, Europe, I think one of the reasons that you see so much um, frustration with with the very quick nature of the evacuation itself is that at the time of the evacuation, Europeans actually had more troops on the ground than the United States. And so, you know, that recognition that they weren't necessarily consulted, I mean, they were consulted, but maybe didn't have an influence on the, of the ultimate decision of the timing of the evacuation will have after effects on the relationship, as well as some of those security threats that could result from any instability in that region. So terrorism threat, trafficking, certainly migration, if instability continues to, to rise in Afghanistan. But sort of turning to, to Russia and China, I mean, these are, these are very real. And if you look across the United States and European countries, the debate is still ongoing as to which should be the priority. I think most countries in Central and Eastern Europe and in the Nordics would say that Russia is the number one threat. And, you know, the alliance has been doing a good job of reinforcing deterrence and defense. I've been really reassured by the measures that the Biden administration has taken in recent days to align ourselves with our European allies and partners in terms of sending clear messages to uh, Putin that invasion is 
not going to de-escalate the situation, but in fact is going to escalate the situation and result in economic measures and a, and a security situation that is less favorable uh, to Russia. So that resolve with regard to communicating that message and those very real consequences is something that, that I see as immediate priority for transatlantic relations in, in 2022. And then, you know, you mentioned China. And I do think with the new German government, which, which again was sworn in yesterday, the prospects for the U.S. and Europe to be more in lockstep on China are looking better. If you look at the coalition agreement, you know, which which comprises, so the new government comprises three parties. So the, the Social Democrats, which is the center-left party, and Chancellor Olaf Scholz comes from that party. Uh, the Greens, which have, you know, not the old view of the Greens as, as sort of anti-defense. They actually have some, some pretty tough policies with, with regard to pushing back on Russia and China, particularly with regard to democratic backsliding and the human rights issues. And then the FDP, which is really a free market sort of libertarian type party. So among that coalition, the position on, on Russia and China, I think is going to be much tougher in terms of pushing back on these human rights abuses. The response might ne not necessarily be a military one, but the resolve there to make sure that the US and Europe are speaking with one voice and aligning their regulations, for example, on export of sensitive technologies or protecting intellectual property. I think that's something that the German government is going to be on board with. So that leave, leaves me to end on, on a slightly positive note uh, with regard to the general direction of transatlantic relationship, even on these most compelling challenges like Russia and China. Excellent. Well, Rachel, I very much appreciate uh, not only your deep insights, but the but your willingness to uh, end with a somewhat hopeful prediction for where where things might be going uh, in the future, at least with respect to willingness, right, to confront our challenges together. And I want to uh, give Catherine and Marty a similar opportunity to uh, give us a, a sentence or two on something that you are hopeful for as we head into 2022. Catherine. Well, thank you. I think, you know, there are there are a lot of questions and, and a lot of concerns, you know, we have around the future of COVID and variants and all these things. But, you know, one of the things that has been so really remarkable over the past year is or the past, you know, two years is the extent to which we have seen new kinds of collaboration for research, you know, really academia and governments and the private sector working together across boundaries, across countries, across continents, sharing information and, you know, finding ways to respond to a crisis and develop new, new products. So I think, you know, there's, there's reason for hope that we can continue to see these kinds of international collaborations move forward. And, you know, I am hopeful as well that, you know, as vaccines, as the COVID-19 vaccines become more widely available, that there will be a greater focus on helping countries to deliver those vaccines and really encourage their populations to take them up so that we can, you know, begin to, you know, start to see some relief on the horizon from the current pandemic and really get back to the important work of sustaining progress on, you know, some of the, the longer term challenges around maternal and child health, HIV and tuberculosis and other infectious diseases, and really take many of the lessons from this kind of international collaboration that has led to so many new developments and really use those to greater effect in the years to come. Great. Marty? 
Well, I think I would have to say, since we are speaking as the Biden administration summit for democracy is taking place, that I am optimistic that although that conversation will not be a panacea and while no summit itself can provide all the solutions to a problem, that it is the start of a process that I hope will help us get to a stronger global consensus around the importance of democracy and the actions that we all need to be taking to strengthen and reinforce it. 110 participants are having a conversation for the first time about human rights and democracy in their own countries, as well as how they can help promote human rights and democracy around the world. And it has brought together not just governments, but civil society organizations and the private sector in an incredibly broad, wide-ranging conversation about both civil and political rights, and economic and social rights. And the hope is that from this summit, the, the participants will launch a year of action to really focus on, now that we've uh, had a serious conversation about democracy's challenges, what are the concrete steps that we all can be taking to strengthen it over the coming year? And so when participants meet again a year from now in December of 2022, I hope that we will have seen some progress in this area. Excellent. Well, it's not surprising that each of you in your hopeful look forward focused on the prospects for global cooperation. That is uh, clearly what it's going to take to solve the tremendous challenges that you each have enlightened us about today that we have seen over the past year and that we are anticipating for the coming year. And I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share your expertise with us. It was a fascinating conversation. I could have gone all day, but we uh, we are now going to have to wrap up. But I, I want to say thank you to all of you for joining the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. And to our audience, thank you for listening. And we will be back in the new year. Happy holidays. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hey, Smart Women, Smart Power listeners. My name is Caitlin Johnson, and I host a podcast called Tech Unmanned, where we elevate women's voices in the intersection of emerging technologies and national security policy. We talk about things like artificial intelligence, quantum, biotechnology, and space. Check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts or at csis.org slash tech unmanned.